0: Welcome to the CSA podcast. And again, this is another edition of the Security Leaders interviews. And I'm very excited today to have a special guest on board, Rick Peters, CISO Operational Technology, North America at Fortinet. And Rick is calling in from Maryland and uh, has a long history in uh, cybersecurity related things. And we'll get into his background. Welcome to the show, Rick.
1: Hey, it's a pleasure to share some time this afternoon. I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation, Derek.
0: Let's just dive right in. I always say that, you know, and I guess in my biased world, superheroes are, or cybersecurity leaders are, are kind of superheroes, and all superheroes have a backstory. What is your backstory? Where are, you, where are you from?
1: Born and raised here on the East Coast, and I would say that the balance of my family is from uh, the central part of the country, Iowa, Minnesota, but uh, my brother and I were East Coast orphans, you know, so we're spoiled, used to being in an area where the arts are plentiful, You know, the density of the population has continued to grow, but there were tremendous opportunities both in education, pre and post college, as well as getting involved in the community that extended also into career activities, which also affected the community. And of course, uh, that created opportunities for me as early as uh, college, where I was able to kind of test the market through cooperative education. Great way when you're studying to figure out whether or not what you're doing is actually where you want your life to actually head. And boy, it, it certainly codified engineering for me. I'm a double E by background, but it was a sweet spot for sure.
0: Awesome. Well, I, I'm curious, and I always try to peel the onion layer. Um, and we'll, so we'll get to where kind of cybersecurity uh, or even technology, let's back up a little bit, yes. where that intersects with your you know, your life. You know, Growing up, are you already interested in it? Or is it something that happens in the schooling process later? Post high school, if I could have
1: tried to script it when I was in high school, I wouldn't have seen uh, myself my path into the math and sciences. I would dabbled in architecture for a bit and realized I didn't have the abstract genes to successfully move into that world. And it was a colleague of mine who suggested, hey, you know, you, you, you have always had a strong math orientation and sciences orientation. Why don't you give engineering a look? And I did. And the, the aptitude was right there. I naturally fit into the world Uh, From a learning perspective, it was very collegial. I found my niche uh, specifically in the digital part of engineering, which leads into where we are today. That was my initial attraction. All engineers have to go through the the physics side of things and, and both analog and digital. So you suffer through both. But my orientation was clear early on that I wanted to head in a direction that dimensionally would be quite prophetic when we got into the 80s.
0: Well, that turns out to be a good choice. These interweb technologies seem to have taken off a little bit. So uh, uh, what what did you do post high school then? Where did you go?
1: So I started out at a community college. I was at University of Maryland initially when I knew I didn't want to be an architect because that wasn't going to be a good fit. And you hit the pause key and said, well, I need to go figure out what I really want to do. And it's advice that I've given as a mentor to many students over the last 20 to 35 years. It's even more important today because college is such a business decision. Both of my sons followed uh, that path by using programs designed for the first two years to get uh, schools to invest in them. Great growth opportunities that didn't exist quite to the extent they did when I started out. But it was a way for me to get grounded and determine that, gee, stuff, electrical engineering is really where I want to head. Ultimately, that coincided with my start in a career. Uh, you and I talked before about uh, Naval Surface Warfare Center. That, that was a place where I got to sort of earn my wings in the studies of EMP and EMI. I uh, got to do a lot of traveling across the country because we do a lot in that space here in North America. So it was a great chance for me to spread my wings and fly a little, if you don't, if you can imagine that. Spent a lot of time out of Kirtland Air Force Base in Arizona, but literally bounced around doing shore platforms and afloat platforms, Hardening, research, and development, all for nuclear effects, both in the EMI and ENP zones. That was a great place to start because, as again, the educational opportunities here in the Baltimore, Washington area are plenty. I segued from there to Capital College or Capital University, as it's known today, an engineering school where the hardcore curriculum is computer science, engineering, and those disciplines, both at the undergraduate and postgraduate levels. That was where I really became interested in, in migrating from the Naval Service Warfare Center to intelligence, specifically the National Security Agency. Through A colleague, actually, in study recommended that I look in that direction. It was a curiosity for sure. And I think one of the things that was a trigger for me was, one, it allowed me to really jump into the deeper end of the pool in digital engineering, specifically cryptography. found that mm-hmm. fast. And so I spent uh, the first five years in NSA earning my wings as a certified cryptologic engineer. That's a whole program of professionalization that at that time, that was sort of a rite of passage. If you were going to come in there and you were going to work in developing sophisticated high-speed cryptography for U.S. high-side systems, you really had to to lay into it, lean into it hard. I love that. So the the, the classroom environment, if you will, extended even into the NSA, which I found fascinating. It was a great growth opportunity, and it let me start to understand how I was really going to fit in and make a difference. And I think that's a thread that I pulled through the rest of my career. I always felt like you know, the questions you need to ask yourself as a career professional is, am I in love with what, am I, what I'm doing? Is there a path for me? Is it important? What difference am I making? And it was constantly able to answer those questions as an engineer at NSA even early on. They grow you and groom you, probably not a surprise. And I think one of the attractive pieces of that environment is you're challenged to take a new assignment about every three years. They don't want you to get stale. It's a very cross-cutting environment. They focus, obviously, on both offense and defense. If you're willing to roll up your sleeves and learn more, it's a fantastic place to get lots of different experiences and grow yourself both horizontally and vertically. And I think that, you know, that was a key for me. I mean, I always found that there were leaders who believed more in me than I did myself. Uh, So they were always challenging me to to up the ante. And as a professional, you you look back on, you go, wow, I, I was really blessed to have so many good eyes watching me, steering me, challenging me to take on something that I didn't think I was ready for. And I think that's really, really important. It, you know, it becomes less work and more you know, honing your tradecraft and realizing that what you're doing, one, is really important, but two, it's extensible. That moment became very clear probably 12 years into my time at NSA, just roughly. I hadn't considered a field assignment. And you know, I had someone ask me to take a look at an opportunity overseas, specifically in Germany, I remember reading it like it was yesterday. I thought, wow, this is really an intriguing opportunity, a chance to go over as as an engineer with 10 plus years of experience. And I live on the tip of the sword, if you will, right? And I I spent five years with uh, U.S. Air Force Europe as NSA's liaison, uh, working their forward operations across the entire AOR, which, of course, is enormous. And at that time, this was 1995, they were kicking off the campaign in Yugoslavia Uh, trying to track down Milosevic, So between what was going on there, clearly a partnership for peace endeavor, what was going on to the West, uh, we were flying Northern Watch at that time, Iraq and Iran in that that zone of operation, very delicate, obviously. And we had a lot of business going on on the Horn of Africa. So I kind of stepped into the deep end of the pool as an engineer, but it was a delight because I could serve the command in, in many capacities. Yeah, you know, I talked about before. NSA grows you and stretches you. Well, field assignments—you know—you wear one hat and you report to many. And I think that's a huge value as you grow professionally. Being challenged by your peers, your leaders, builds one trust and two, it it, it forces you to think long and hard about where are you going and why is this so important. And for me, I I think the the epiphany was realizing that I wasn't working just for the comms director at, at Ramstein Air Force Base. I was working for the four-star who was championing the whole cause in Europe. I was also working for the operations two-star and the intelligence leader who was a one-star at that time. And that's really important because you realize they all have a stake in you and they're not bashful. As soon as they realize that you bring something to the table, you know solutions, not problems, you become an asset. And and, uh, the Air Force embraced my family and made us feel very welcome there. And it was an experience of a lifetime. And it really changed the course of everything that happened for the 20 years post that experience.
0: That's formative. I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff in the formative years. There's no question about it.
1: It is. It is. No doubt. How long were you overseas? I arrived there in July of 1995. And uh, interesting, you go over with the notion of I'm going to be here for three years. That seems like a long time. I mean, you're really taking your entire family. And I think at that time, about eight or 9,000 pounds worth of stuff and moving your entire household. That yeah. seemed like an enormous, enormous challenge. But I'll tell you, the dominoes, Derek, lined up like they were supposed to. Every single thing happened as if it was intended and designed to be. Within a year and a half, the director of NSA CSS Europe contacted me and said, hey, I'd like you to think about extending, you know, staying more than the three years and kind of caught me by surprise. I'm thinking, yeah, I'm only a year plus into this. Why are we talking about this? And he said, well, continuity is very important. You know, you've got your fingerprints over a lot of what's going on in the USAFE community, as well as NSEER, which is the entire European campaign, which was at Stuttgart at the time, still is. And he said, "I, you know, we see you as someone who will continue to grow in that role there with U.S. Air Force Europe. And if you'd like to stay for five years, we'd like you to stay for five years. So, We thought about it, it was good for my family, and we ended up staying then until the summer of 2000. So a five-year stint, which I'll be honest with you, it went by so fast, it was incredible. The work pace was outrageous, but you fall in love with it because you realize the men and women who serve our country uh, forward and and their deployment rate was unbelievable at that time, that you can have a direct hand in helping to protect what they were doing. I think that was the second big epiphany for me, is realizing I was able to raise the bar for the level of security that afforded protection of it, not just intelligence, things that were being monitored and watched very carefully so yeah. that our activities could be executed in complete privacy and allow us to be successful in our missions without putting our people in danger. That's a huge one, particularly when you're talking about supporting sorties. You know, the pilots think they can fly anywhere and are invincible, and you help them be invincible by raising their security bar as well. So it was incredibly rewarding. Uh, you wouldn't trade the experience for anything.
0: Well, thank you for that service. I, uh, I was doing operations in the Adriatic Sea about the time you got there uh, myself, yes. and uh, <laughs> we were busy. <laughs>
1: it, was, it was a period of tremendous campaign energy, but I tell you, it was also a period of tremendous success. It's all about saving lives and doing the right thing. I never had a moment's doubt that our, our energies and our efforts were properly directed, I felt like we were showing great prudence in our campaigns. Precision was everything. And we ultimately were taking care of both of the citizens in the areas that, of, of course, we were responding to, as well as our own who were putting their lives on the line.
0: You mentioned a couple of things uh, a few minutes ago that made me think there was some exposure to the topic near and dear to many of our listeners' parts, uh, operating technology, operational technology. You mentioned something very early on, pre NSA uh, about platforms or something, and so where does operating technology uh, fit in, and is it is it inter- is it overlapping with cybersecurity, or is it kind of not not yet converged so to speak? As far so as that, so that
1: is that uh, a trigger point for me. By the time that I had wrapped up uh, my career at NSA at the end of uh, 2017. I had been afforded several opportunities to work both the offensive and defensive components of operational technology, what we better know as industrial control systems and SCADA technology. Those were uh, big shifts for me. I spent a lot of time as a cryptographer historically, but I brought back a lot of operations knowledge from being overseas Um, and realizing, well, this is not such a new space as much as it is a challenge to, one, be successful in exploitation of foreign platforms, because when you're working offense, you're thinking foreign targets. But one of the things that you you realize as you're doing this work is, what's different between the SCADA platforms that our foreign adversaries rely on and the very infrastructure, critical infrastructure that we rely on here in the United States? And you realize very quickly, not much. Uh, right. In fact, it's just as primitive. While they were difficult targets to prosecute as early as 2000 much has changed in the last two decades. You hear today the term digital transformation or ITOT convergence. That's batted oh, yeah. around quite a bit. And, and by yeah. the time I was considering, hey, what do I want to do next, You know, post the National Security Agency, the CISO at Fortinet uh, approached me when he knew I was uh, getting ready to retire and said, hey, I'd like you to think about Fortinet. And, and Again, it comes back to well, what is it that I would do that's important? What difference can I make? And how will I be as charged up as I was in 14 to 15 consecutive assignments with the intelligence community? Good questions to ask. The answer was clear when they, they revealed the OT opportunity, operational technology, which is kind of an umbrella, right? When we talk about OT today, uh, specifically in Fortinet, and we're talking about manufacturing. And I will say on a global scale, manufacturing. Energy and utilities, transportation, and even building automation. These are big areas where the attack surface has exploded because of environments that historically were air gapped. Of course, the air gapping is practically disintegrated. And now you have this opportunity, I'll, I'll say for the attacker, the cyber attacker, who but one doesn't use ethics as their baseline for decision making, their playbook's wide open to exploit uh systems that often rely on legacy technology and when i say legacy for ot there are manufacturing systems out there that have os that are 20 years old so you will encounter platforms and say wow i didn't think these were still in existence well they are because they work
0: the disk operating system is still alive
1: that's right and the metric that that is most important in operational technology is safety and productivity if it's running 24-7 and people are safe in the conducting of that operation, that's the metric. Of course, security has reared its ugly head. I'd say more so over the last five to seven years, you're seeing a lot more attention to it today for OT. IT, of course, has a history. Uh, very service-oriented, understanding that, you know, of course, there's adversaries out there seeking to be disruptive. But operational technology leaders kind of sat back and said, nah, you no, know, we, we're behind our own wall. We've got an air gap. It's all good. Well, then executives started making decisions over this past decade to connect these environments. And the, and the rationale for it was clear. They wanted access to metrics, intelligence, data. I call that the commodity that will allow them to be more efficient in carrying out operations from supply line to being able to do security or manufacturing as a service. So I can turn key a line to deliver product more efficiently and effectively to the client. So I become... My my perspective as a leader in a specific industry stands out because I can deliver against you know the tactical requirement that became very attractive for o t leaders and that became attractive across the verticals and as that happened, of course, we reveal that there now are these range of opportunities into a connected environment that hasn't practiced the level of cyber hygiene that is necessary to defend it's kind of too edged, Derek. I know when I talk about the challenges today, you can think about edge security or perimeter security, keeping the bad guy out. That's always kind of been the the stoic position. You know, we'll keep the bad guys out. But my question that I asked initially when I came on board is how do you know the bad guys are already on target? If you've converged and you don't have a sense of of security, wellness or maturity in your environment, what sort of indicator do you have that an adversary is not already on target and waiting to execute a campaign? And that was a good question to ask because many said well, we don't know that. We don't have that. We don't have that sense of wellness. Uh, nor will we confess that we believe we are because there's no reason. To. You can't prove it. You kind of tilt this problem on its edge and you say, well, how about thinking from the inside out? If we've learned anything over the last two, three decades. It's that the one element that we cannot trust is the human being. They'll let us down every time. The intelligence community has suffered. The manufacturing OT community has suffered, and certainly IT has. The banking industry builds in tolerance for it. We understand that the cyber attacker, regardless of motivation, is going to succeed a percentage of the time. It's minimizing the value of that attack and what they take away should be the ultimate goal, right? So, Banking might build in a tolerance for, for fiscal loss, but of course, they'd love to be able to minimize that as well. So the bar is constantly being raised and tuning the environment so we are aware. You think about credit card security for the average citizen today, and they they marvel at the ability of the banks to reach out to you the first time you do something that instinctively doesn't look like you. So analytics are running at speed. I'm thankful for that. I yeah. you know, It changes our behavior, right? If I'm gonna travel now, I reach out and I let my credit card companies know I'm traveling. I change my profile. And that's great. Well, for operational technology, it's not, you know, it's like moving a battleship. It's a slow turn. They're not akin to accepting and wanting to change their environments very often, as we know, the legacy technologies being there within the environment. So the challenge becomes understanding what's going on behaviorally. You know, when you think cybersecurity today. It's a much bigger space and set of problems that we're tackling. I think that's what excites me the most. And over the last two years of Fortinet, I, uh, my fund meter has been pegged because we are realizing the opportunity to grow the solution space. And it's very collaborative. This is a team sport. I would suggest if anybody's out there believing they've got it all solved, uh, you might want to show them the door because there's so much work to be done. And I think industries realize that that's the beauty, right, from the large system integrators to those who provide managed services to the single small clients. Everybody understands their level of vulnerability and their fragility. And when you think operational technology, I think you have to think about the fragility of very high cost assets. There's a lot of resource in in play and you don't have to read very far. There are plenty of case studies out there that illustrate the losses, typically run in the 100 to 200 million zone for an OT environment. And when you get into manufacturing zones like um, pharmaceuticals, you push the billion dollar line very quickly. Yeah, whether I'm doing simple extortion, you know, ransomware kinds of stuff, or maybe I'm I'm really going after your intellectual property, that which sets you apart, right? Your your trade craft, your recipes. You know, think about Coca-Cola. What do they have to do to protect what is their tradecraft? Well, that's their recipe. Naturally, that's attractive to an adversary. And, you know, I want to take it up a level and say, well, sabotage could be a part of the role as well. I'd say most of the time you're looking at the interest in stealing or the theft of your intellectual property. There's so much data now that's supporting that, that our, our ability to interdict and detect and stifle. The the adversary is what's really at stake today. That's the exciting part of the of the ongoing uh, pursuit of, a, of of developing solutions that are more sophisticated.
0: That's all all you know all, all affirmation and yes from me in in, in agreeing with uh, your, your your viewpoints on that. You know a little bit about your your career path. I mean, you've got it's interesting. I've been talking to people that have been in different roles at different places, and you did obviously yes. different roles, but a lot within the, the the NSA. And you're at an interesting juncture, and there may be other people that be like, I'm in government, and now I'm going to the private sector. Yes. Maybe that's worth pulling out today. if somebody's listening to this and says, I'm I work in some part yep. of the government stack, and, I'm, and I want to come out, or I'm thinking about, or I'm being recruited yeah. out. What is that like? And how do you feel? You, you said uh, 2017, so you're three years. Uh,
1: it's about two and a half years now here with Fortinet. That's a great point, Derek. I think in our career paths, you know, the, the important thing is that along the way, you need to have great mentors. You just can't put too much weight on having those individuals who are influencing you in a way, not telling you what to do, but giving you pieces of information that help you make the right decision for yourself. And I don't think it isn't about the right path or the wrong path, it's your path. And I have shared that that perspective with many, many of my mentees along the, the way, particularly the last 20, 25 years, because there's always that chance to give back. And I think that's a huge opportunity today. And leader, true leaders are always thinking ahead, thinking succession, thinking about who's the next generation, where the folks who are going to take the reins and continue this mission very successfully. That was a commitment, certainly at NSA, but it was also a commitment by those who helped me to, to take on challenges I didn't feel like I was ready for. And then ultimately by 20 end of 2017, to be able to commit to the next phase of my career, which at the time, I would have told you straightforwardly that uh, I hadn't given tremendous thought to it. I knew there were opportunities out there. And you you know it because the demand for talented people in the intelligence community is always there. It's very difficult to sustain that workforce. The commercial industry is willing to pay a lot more than the yeah. government can afford to pay, right? That's a technologist challenge today. The supply, the pipeline yeah. of, of technologists that is not a new problem. It's been going on now for decades. The percentage of students that, that uh, leave the country has always been a problem, you know, finding uh, opportunity abroad and now and, and moving into industries that are competitive with that which could happen here close to home and here in the United States. That's an ongoing problem. And now the commercial industry, of course, particularly in cybersecurity and the full range uh, we'll from, from all the traditional practices, even uh, cyber forensics. These are disciplines that the demand signal is high. Part of the cause and the, the feedback that I would give to anybody thinking about it is be looking ahead, be thinking ahead. I think you always have to be able to answer one question. What do you want to do next? I think it's very important. Because if you don't know yet, you're going to be asked that question and it will come out. And I know that was one of the questions I was asked early on. And I said, well, that, for me, my number one goal is to always be challenged and work hard problems. I I was able to always accomplish that objective, you know, through the first 37 years of my career. And I thought, wow, the challenge now is to move over to the commercial side of the world, which would be a complete different model. However, I want to learn that model. I'm very anxious to learn. So that that was a high appeal. But then the opportunity to couple that with working a problem space that I was familiar with, operational technology, was a beautiful marriage. So let me jump into the a new deep end of the pool with a company like Fortinet and say, well, the first thing I need to understand is why Fortinet? What makes them uh, unique in what they're doing you know, versus their competition? So it was a close study to make sure that I, one, truly understood what it was about their approach that was significant and promising to solving the bigger problem, which is protection of critical infrastructure on a global scale. I mean, the kinds of systems we're talking about that I mentioned before, citizens are around our globe, not just in the United States, they rely on it daily. They love turning on the power, trusting the water supply, knowing that they Energy can jump. It magically up. works. And it works every day. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they trust the infrastructure for air, for airlines and trains and automobiles. All these are targets of opportunity for disruption. If you want to think like the adversary. So it's a balance there. So the migration, the decision to go to the commercial side of the world wasn't so much the opportunity. There were plenty of opportunities. As soon as your resume is out there, you know your mailbox is filling up. It's simply making sure that you tune into what it is that you really want to do. Focus it down, neck it down, because you'll hear lots of challenges and opportunities and, until you align them to what really triggers your, your, your fun meter. And I always use that term because I think when you're having fun, it's not work anymore. It's just I can't wait to get to it every day. And I, I think the biggest challenge for me was going from working in a skiff <laughs> in the intelligence community to coming out from behind those doors, no more badging in and working from there home.
0: There's out here. There's birds and bees. <laughs> yes. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I thought to myself, discipline. How are we going to be disciplined enough to do this? But fortunately, I was able to set up my office environment and the balance of, of traveling and being out on the road and being a thought leader and engaging clients and customers and partners had an appeal uh, because I'm already passionate about the problem. And then it was, well, how can I do more from my home place? And it really is much of its virtual. So today's challenges and what's going on right now with our health crisis don't really change a lot for me other than, you know, I'm not jumping in my car and driving into town. I'm just simply yeah. not going to do that. But the work environment is very fluid. I went from working with folks around the globe to really doing go-to meetings, Zoom sessions, you name it, whatever tool you're using to accomplish business through education to talking about the problems, what can we do about it, thinking about options to solve problems, and really just diving in and being into it completely. So the difference today right now in this period of time is we're doing it all from remote. Well, you're seeing the changes happen at speed right now. Of course, there's a lot going on to disrupt those capabilities as well. I was just literally reading this morning about uh, Zoom technology that's that's been uh, challenged of late, but I know there's work going on already to subvert that problem. I have confidence in the security world from the IT perspective that they're tuned into what the realm of the possible is and that we can carry on and continue to do the important work like developing and fielding solutions that will really harden the operational technology environment so that you can trust the water that you're drinking, that we know that the processes that are ongoing to treat that water and deliver it to your home are, in fact, intact, that all of those automated kinds of security processes have been designed in very transparently. uh, It's very scalable, and it's happening at speed because that's really important to you as the consumer, Receiving contaminated water even for a minute is unacceptable. And, and losing your power uh, becomes something very frustrating if, if the grid goes dark or goes gray for a period of time. Watch how folks react. You know, they get them very frustrated very quickly. So, you know, we are accustomed to having all of those services. We depend on them. We anticipate that they're going to be there every day. And so that's part of the challenge, right? And it's, I think it's why it's so important. You're seeing it around the globe. Progress in in Europe's amazing. Asia-Pac invested big time. And North America now, our industries, key industries are all in. They understand because the CEOs want to be able to sleep well at night, whether they're managing oil rigs or whether they're delivering product or whether they're in the logistics world, say, you know, the Amazons of the world or the DHLs of the world that have to be able to deliver services and capabilities. These are all happening 24-7.
0: It's interesting. Uh, we, we are at such an interesting time. All these things you're talking about, we we do take for granted. I, I've been wanting to get a student group to do this for me. It's like how many systems do we touch from the moment our alarm clock goes off and we and we we lay up we get up in bed and everything we do that day, and then you know put our head back on the pillow. How many systems that we mostly take for granted do we interface with? And I start listing right. them out. And it's like, oh, boy, it gets pretty lengthy pretty quickly. It's a lot that's of things. Right. I share your disposition that it's, it is, there's a lot of work to be done. If you could go back, I think, you know, this is, I always like to kind of begin with the, uh, or end with the beginning, if you will. Sure. If you go back, what, what advice would you give your, your younger self, career advice, would you give your younger self, whatever, however many years you want to go back? You want to go back a couple sure. decades, you want to go right back to college, that's up to you. But what would you tell your younger self?
1: I think the most important element, and this is kind of foundational, is be open. And by that I mean be open to opportunity, because you never know. You know, I I started down one path and quickly discovered another was the right zone for me to be into because it triggered my ability to learn faster, I adapted quickly because it wasn't hard. One of my sons confided in me that as I couldn't understand his acceleration into cyber forensics, he says, well, it's not hard. It comes where others are struggling all around me. He says, this is easy for me. It's fun for me. And I said, well, you're, you're never going to work then because it's always going to be a challenge for you that you'll love to take on. And I think that's foundational. And I think the other piece that I mentioned earlier is, you know, welcome advice, welcome advice from trusted mentors, two to three individuals, anytime in your career that you know you can go to and seek counsel Because you know they're going to give you the best advice they can. And it's not that they're telling you what to do, they're just giving you those good data points that then you have to dwell on Uh, because we're all asked to do things from time to time that we don't necessarily think are perfect for us. There were plenty of assignments when I was in the intelligence community that I initially said, no, I don't want to do that. We had an element called the cyber task force that, you know, it was intriguing, but, you know, the first invitation wasn't the right timing. It wasn't that I didn't find it interesting, but I had, I was working on a hard problem at that time and I needed to get the progress towards solving that and putting it in a place where I could hand it off to a point that I felt good about it. Not selfishly, but it's a succession thing. So I think succession as you move along is also an important thing because somebody's going to follow in your footsteps. Why not ready for continued success? I think that's really important. And, you know, Never be afraid to tackle something you think is too hard for you because somebody else who's asked you to take it on already knows you can do it. There's always that self-doubt in the back of your mind going, what am I doing? I'm going to get myself into an environment here where I can't even swim. And what you find out in almost every single instance is you can swim. It takes a little time to adapt and figure out, okay, what are the parameters of this environment? What do I bring to the equation that's going to help solve the problem and advance us? You know, as you move on in your career, it's usually helping others as you have done and enabling others to succeed and giving them the reins. Uh, You know, as an engineering leader, particularly over the last five or six assignments at the agency, my hands were no longer touching the bits. I wasn't allowed to anymore, but it was more important to recognize the excellence and the amazing array of talent that I was surrounded with and help them succeed in the way that I had earlier in my career. And really enable the business as much as carry it out and recognize that we have an amazing array of talent, both not just at NSA, but we have an amazing array of talent around the country, both in the commercial world and in the government. And you simply have to get out of the way sometimes and let them do the great things that they do.
0: I like uh, the way you described it. I kind of pictured the the mentorship sandwich. It's like be receiving mentorship and be giving mentorship. And that's been a theme in your life. And it's a lot of leaders. That's a common theme. It's, you know, yes. not surprising that you brought it up.
1: They will ask you to take on things that you absolutely do, don't feel comfortable with. And I think sometimes you got to peel it back a little bit and take another look at it. When it's not comfortable initially, ask yourself, well, am I just being selfish, stubborn, or do I? is there really more to this opportunity than I'm seeing? And usually when you take a second look, you realize, okay, there's a couple of threads here where my value is clear to them and it just wasn't to me. And then ultimately, then it's fun again, right? You just jump in, you become part of a team, you accelerate to the to the finish line. And then by the time you think you've got it all mastered, they ask you to take on the next one. So you don't get too comfortable in your position because you know that inevitably you're going to be asked to take on the next hard problem.
0: That success is going to breed some more success. <laughs> That's the exactly right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Rick Peters, CISO of Operational Technology North America at Fortinet. Thank you for coming on the show
1: absolute pleasure derek thank you for allowing me to share time with you
0: take care be well in these uh challenging times rick stay safe absolutely